0: God is our shepherd. In fact, I want to share with you one of the great tensions of Scripture. And you only catch this in the New International Version. If you go to the Bible's last book, and Jerry led us in a reading from Revelation just a moment ago, but before we we, we plunge in here, just go to chapter 7 of Revelation. This is one of the great anomalies, one of the great tensions that... One of the opposites, as it were, tucked away right in the heart of this book of prophecy. And we just got word up to the uh, mezzanine booth, and they have prepared this text on the screen. So if you don't have the NIV, I'll, I'll invite you to look at the screen. But look at this. Uh, this is Revelation chapter 7. Let's put verse 17 on the screen, please. Revelation 7:17, 7, and this is from the NIV. Do you see the, uh, the anomaly there? For the Lamb... We just had a scripture reading a moment ago. That's our theme text from Revelation 14. Follow the Lamb. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their what? Isn't that amazing? There is, an, there is a Lamb in the universe who is also a shepherd. How can you be a Lamb and a shepherd when shepherds lead lambs? But here is a Lamb, capital L Lamb, at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What do you say to that, huh? Hallelujah. Yep, the Lamb who is our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lamb is my shepherd. Did you know that if you can hear these words being spoken right now, that in fact you have been called to be a leader? John Maxwell's terse definition of leadership really draws all of us into the net. Write this down, will you? Leadership is influence. Nothing more, nothing less. Isn't that something? Leadership is influence. Nothing more, nothing less, which means a breathless mother hovering over a cradle. Does that mother have influence? Does she? But of course, A pounding carpenter swaying on that scaffolding with the work crew. Does he have influence? But, of course. A lonely senior citizen. Nothing in the room but a telephone. Does she have influence? Yep. Quiet roommate in a crowded dormitory. Does he have influence? A beleaguered president of a university. Does she have influence? A volunteer pianist in a nursery Sabbath school. Does he have influence? If you have influence, you are a leader. Which is why this one is for you. Let's pray. Oh God, given your call to influence others and thus to lead, teach us how to follow through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. If you remember this guy, take a look at the screen. Do you remember him? Does that face... Well... (laughs) Thank you, guys. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you do remember this guy, don't you? You recognize that face? That is the face of the much-ballyhooed and anticipated American superstar of the 2006 Winter Olympics completed just a few weeks ago. That is Bodie Miller. You recognize him. Here's the cover of Newsweek magazine. In anticipation of the Turin, Italy Olympics, sure of the sweep of gold that this boy would bring home to the United States. And you see the title of uh, the magazine, Miller Time, the truth about bad boy skier Bodie Miller. The downhill speedster who boasted that on occasion he drank before he raced. Here's a clip, by the way, of the Bodie Mobile plummeting down an alpine slope. Take a look at this guy. Can he ski or what? Look him, watch him drag air. Now look how much air he gets. Look at that thing. He's going about uh, between 70 and 80 miles an hour as he plummets down those alpine stretches. Bodie Miller, the whole world heard the name of that uh, Olympic superstar. But after all the bravado, all the boasting, how many medals did Bodie Miller bring home? The answer is zero. Nada. Nothing. Just a few days ago, Washington Times ran a piece about Bodie Miller and this generation of young adults. And I'm very grateful to Beverly Pottle, who shared it with me. And I want to I want to uh, read it with you. This is about two weeks ago. All right. Title of this piece, An Army of Narcissists. Subtitle, Inflated Egos Born of Self-Esteem. Talk, Professor Contends. Here we go. A few weeks ago, U.S. Champion skier Bodie Miller turned in a stunningly poor performance at the Olympics with two non medal finishes, a disqualification, and two complete races. Unabashed, listen to this, unabashed, he told the Associated Press, I just did it my way. I'm not a martyr, I'm not a do gooder, I just want to go out and rock, and man, I rocked here. Have mercy. Now, I want you to get the next words. And in fact, these words are in your study guide, and I want you to write them down. So pull your study guide real quickly. You're not going to take a lot of time here. Thank you, ushers, for getting study guides to everybody. If you didn't get a study guide, hold your hand up real quick up in the balcony or here. Those of you watching on television, let me put the website on the screen for you. There it is, www.pmchurch.tv. We're in a series called Eternity's Edge. And this particular one, some final reflections on Bodie Miller and the Andrew's Edge. Click on there. Where it says study guide, you'll have this study guide with us. I want you to get this this line from Scripture. Okay? Not from Scripture, rather, from uh, the newspaper. This is not Scripture. This will be newspaper. Trust me. You'll see it. You'll see it in a minute. All right. You see it in your study guide. Mr. Miller's exuberant self-assessment makes him a poster child for Generation Me. Write it in, please. For Generation Me, says San Diego State University psychology professor... Gene Twinge. Americans born after 1970, that would be a whole bunch of you, including the so-called Generation X and Millennial Generation, have become an army. Write it in. An army of narcissists. Now, who are narcissists? Narcissists are people who are utterly preoccupied with themselves. They're always talking about themselves wherever they go. That's a narcissist, all right? She explains... This uh, uh, professor twinge does in her new in her new book. And here's the title generation me. Why today's young Americans are more confident, assertive, entitled and more miserable than ever before. What a book title. huh? I'm not going to read that one. All right. So. You've got that down. Now, let me just keep reading here in the uh, newspaper. Unlike their parents, all right, speaking of this generation, unlike their parents and grandparents, Gen Mies have never known a world that put duty before self, she says. Instead, they were raised in a culture obsessed with self-esteem and feel-good mantras such as, believe in yourself and you can be anything and never give up, give up on your dreams. However... The result is a generation of youths who are tolerant, confident, open-minded, ambitious, and have wildly unreasonable expectations about how they fit into the adult world. So what should we do, Professor Twedge? Jot this down. She goes on. Her most urgent advice is ditch the self-esteem movement. And here, here, here it goes. Fill it in. Praise based on nothing results in an inflated ego. Praise based on nothing. An inflated ego. Now, obviously, not everybody agrees with uh, Professor Twins. Certainly not the National Association of (laughs) Self-Esteem. Their spokesman begs to differ. Well, it's good. This is balanced reporting. I mean, this is what we get in the student movement, balanced reporting. So you get both sides and you get an idea of how to draw your conclusion. But anyway, here's uh, Sharon Fountain, president of the National Association of Self-Esteem. She defines self-esteem as the experience of being capable of meeting life's challenges and being worthy of happiness. Hallelujah. Personal competence grows out of self-awareness, accurate self-assessment and self-confidence, which is linked to self-esteem. If we are prepared to deal with the world in context with responsibility and accountability, then not only does it improve the quality of our lives, it adds to the world. So she said, wait a minute. Time out. Don't you throw self-esteem out. However, some other professors, namely this one from Florida State University, have jumped forward and said, wait a minute. Twinge is right. Now, who's this one? This would be uh, Roy Baums, Baumeister. He is a professor of psychology at Florida State. And he says, ample data now shows that, if anything, Americans tend to overrate and overvalue ourselves. Those of you from other countries, is that true or false? <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> All right. His advice, okay, this is Baumeister, his advice to nonprofits, policymakers, teachers, parents, and therapists, jot it down, forget about self-esteem and invest in self-control. Write that down. Hmm. But enough of Bodie Miller. We didn't come here for Bodie Miller today. No, not you, not I. Enough of Bodie Miller and his type. So, do you remember this man? Does this face ring a bell? Yep. You recognize that face, do you? That face belongs to John Nevins Andrews, who happens to be the man that this university was named after. Which is why out on the campus mall, just, just out through our front doors here, you will find a sculpture. A bronze rendition of John Andrews on the Boston Wharf. This would be September 15, 1874. And his two children, Charles and Mary, are beside him. Where's his wife? You ever wondered? where's his wife? There are only three of them. He buried Angeline... Two and a half years earlier. And so this widower, okay, this widower, this is his vita, this is his his resume, Bible scholar, writer, evangelist, president of the General Conference, editor of the Adventist Review, and all of that before he turned the age of 45. This widower and his two children are poised to become the first official missionaries of the fledgling Seventh-day Adventist Church. John Nevins Andrews, and I hold in my hands the latest edition. Have you ever seen this magazine? Once you get out of here, you're going to see a lot of it. It's Focus Magazine. It goes to the alumni who graduated from the university named after Andrews. John Nevins Andrews. And I tell you what, this is some cover story because they've just come across 29 letters that many didn't even know existed, from the pen of John Evans Andrews. And, wouldn't you know it, thank you, Center for Adventist Research, wouldn't you know it, the last letter in this collection. I tell you, when I read this letter, it just moved my heart to the core. And I want you to read the letter with me. In fact, we have the original right here under the careful guardianship of Merlin Burt. Merlin, come on up. Merlin Burt is... The curator and director of the Center for Adventist Research put that letter carefully right here. Whew. Merlin, that's an incredible collection, by the way. Twenty-nine letters. Tremendously inspiring. How in the world did you get a hold of them?
1: Well, Dr. Jeannie Andrews Willemson mm. is a pediatrician in Loma Linda. Okay. And our family has known her for quite a few years.
0: She's related to... Uh...
1: She's not actually related. Oh, she's related to Jean Andrews. Yeah. yeah. Great-granddaughter. great Great, one great. One great. Great granddaughter. Great granddaughter. Retired now as a pediatrician. In her 80s, and she truly has the humble spirit of Jane Andrews as I've gotten to know her.
0: So she's been, she's, she's held on to these 29 letters. Now, there's actually a little connection with your wife and uh, the Andrews family. Just, just share that. That's a human interest.
1: Yeah, it's kind of special. My wife's mother mm. is Estonian, a country yeah. that many don't know about, mm-hmm. and Jeannie Andrews Willemson married an Estonian, okay. and it was my wife's grandparents who helped match them and get them together.
0: So you've had your eye on these letters for how long?
1: About 25 years.
0: 25 years. You go, Merlin.
1: Truth is, I didn't know about all these letters. When it came, I was overwhelmed because it was
0: more than I realized. Yeah. I'd known
1: some parts of yeah. this.
0: Now, these letters stretch over over his life, but you know, Merlin, I am especially blessed with this letter. That you have brought right here. I mean, folks, this is the real thing. I'll put it right back down. Uh, <laughs> bend it all up and uh, something amazing about this. Now, in the, in the uh, Focus Magazine, we, we could see it because I have it open to the Focus Magazine uh, uh, picture of this, but he writes up here private. He writes private, and then, what's this word here? Strictly. Strictly private and confidential. So you have private written twice right at the top of the letter. And you were just showing me that on the back, what's he got on the back? Well, he puts his name and he puts private again. So there are three privates. By his beautiful penmanship. And you're going to see his penmanship in just a moment. So he wants to make sure that the only person that gets this letter dated April 24, 1883 is dear Uriah. And which Uriah would that be?
1: Uriah Smith, editor of the
0: Review and Herald. Okay, so he's writing to the Review editor. He says you can share this letter with one other editor. That's it. All right. Now, folks, this letter is so moving. And his penmanship is so legible, which is more than we can say for some of you. That I, want you, that I want you to see this letter. We'll put it on the screen, and you'll be able to read it. I'm going to read it right here. Merlin, help me in case I get a word wrong or something. And you folks just follow along. Can you see dear Uriah? How many can see dear Uriah? Can you see it? Okay, that, even in the back? Okay, up in the balcony. Good. Okay, let me read it out loud. Dear Uriah. So there's a private, 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 private. Dear Uriah, at the present time, by reason of my great prostration... I am brought to look death in the face. What's going on here?
1: He's dying of tuberculosis. He's just recently, a few years before, buried his daughter, who also died of tuberculosis. Mary died right there. Well, in Battle Creek. That's right. Just
0: a few years before. Mm -hmm. So, he knows he's dying. In fact, we know he dies in, in 1883, and so about how long after this letter? About six months later. About six months later. So, the man knows he's dying. So, he's writing to his friend, Uriah. There is, okay, you see it where it says, there is one thing that troubles me, which I lay before you in the form of a petition. It will fall to your lot to mention my death in the review. Little obituary column, you got it? So you're going to, it's going to, you're going to be the one. I beg you, now notice this folks, I beg you to make the simplest and briefest statement possible. And I solemnly charge you to exclude every word of eulogy. Now, he said, I'm going to tell you how long I want it. Watch this. One third of a column of the review will suffice for all that should be said. That is just absolutely incredible, Merlin.
1: You know, one of the first things I did was go back and see what was written in the review. They didn't stay to a third of a column, but it was about a column and a third. But it was very little compared Hmm. to what you would expect.
0: Now now, 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 listen to this. It gets even more tender. I make this request. Look at look it. I make this request because I fear that your kind regard for me will constrain you to say what I do not merit and what ought not to be said. Read on now. My best acts have had some trace of selfishness in them or have been lacking in love toward God and man. I beseech you, therefore, by all the affection which you bear me, that you will regard this my earnest petition. Isn't that amazing? Ladies and gentlemen, do you want the mark of a great leader? Do you want the mark of a great leader? You just read it. When I die, write it up real small. I beg I, I earnestly petition you. And six months l- later, Merlin, he's dead. Ah oh, bless you. I, I wanna
1: I wanna be like Jane Andrews. Oh
0: boy. You and me both. Thank you very much, Merlin. Hang on to that. Wow. Such a moving testimony from so selfless a life. And, and think of this, folks. Think of this. No generation me. huh? No generation in me in John Evans Andrews. No army of narcissists in that little missionary family of three. In fact, I want you to write it down. I'll put the words back up on the screen for you. Write down his last will and testament as it were. Fill it in, please. It will fall to your lot to mention my death in the review. I beg you to make the simplest And briefest statement possible. My best acts have had some trace of selfishness in them or have been lacking in love toward God and man. End quote. Authentic. There it is. Authentic, vulnerable selflessness. They surely are the words of a truly great man. Are they not? Bodie Miller... John Evans Andrews, two men with influence, and with Maxwell's definition, which we embraced at the beginning, obviously, therefore, two leaders. If you could pick your mentor, hmm? if you could pick one of them to be the leader that you follow, which one would you follow? Jim Collins. In his million-copy bestseller... Entitled, Good to Great, Why Some Companies Make the Leap and Others Don't, describes the secret. Now listen to this. This is the secret of the most successful corporate leaders in America today. These are the top. They were once good, this, their companies, but they have jumped to great. The top leaders of these winning companies he calls level five leaders. Now, I'm going to put some words on the screen for you here. Level five leaders, Collins writing, are a study in duality. Modest and willful, humble and fearless to quickly grasp this concept. Think of the United States president, Abraham Lincoln, one of the few level five leaders in United States history who never let his ego get in the way of his primary ambition for the larger cause of an enduring great nation. Yet. Yet. Those who mistook Mr. Lincoln's personal modesty, shy nature, and awkward manner as signs of weakness found themselves terribly mistaken to the scale of 250,000 Confederate and 360,000 Union lives, including Lincoln's own. End quote. Level five. Level five. They've interviewed these top leaders, and here's what they found out. Now you're going to need to fill this in. Here we go. In contrast to the very eye-centric style of the comparison leaders, these are the companies that never made it big. They got up this high, but they just couldn't break the uh, ceiling. In comparison to the very I, egocentric style of the comparison leaders, we were struck by how the good to great leaders didn't, his emphasis, didn't talk about themselves. During interviews, they talk about the company and the contributions of other executives as long as we'd like, but would deflect discussion about their own contributions. It wasn't just false modesty. Those who work with or wrote about the good to great leaders used words like quiet, humble, modest, Reserved, shy, gracious, mild-mannered, self-effacing, which means self-erasing, understated, did not believe his own clippings, and so forth. And note, they were seemingly ordinary people, quietly producing extraordinary results. Sounds a lot like our namesake, John Evans Andrews, does it not? Humble, modest, self-effacing, an ordinary man, quietly producing extraordinary results. Level five leadership. Sounds to me like Jesus himself, does it not? The God of the universe who came down and incarnated himself into this rebel race, becoming one with us. This God who came so that he might live and die and rise again for the fallen human race. Ladies and gentlemen, I would submit to you and Jim Collins that the ultimate level five leader is, in fact, our Lord Jesus himself. Level five, modest and willful, humble and fearless. Bodie Miller, John Evans Andrews, Jesus Christ. If you could follow a leader, which one would you choose? The apocalypse ends with a portrait of the final generation on earth. And I tell you what, there is no conflict in their consciousness over who their leader really is. Open your Bible, please, to the Bible's last book, the book of Revelation. Now I want to go back to what we read at the beginning. Revelation chapter 14, please. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's a pew Bible right in front of you. Pull it out and turn to page 830. I'll be in the New International Version now. Revelation chapter 14, that final generation on earth. No equivocation here who their leader is. Revelation 14, verse 1, Then I looked, John writes, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with Him 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. Now, hold on. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Verse 4. These are those who did not defile themselves with women. Now, you remember, just a little, uh, a little aside here. You remember that in the book of Revelation, there are women that are contrasted. Pure woman, pure church. Uh, fallen woman, fallen church. Those two women are contrasted. When John says, "I saw, I saw the symbolic number of a final generation, and I saw that they had not, for, as he used the old King James, they had not become, they had not fornicated themselves with this fallen woman." What's he saying? He's saying they didn't buy in to that system, the, even though it ruled the world. They refused to compromise. So that's who he's describing. Let me read verse four again. Uh, these are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure, spiritually pure. They, now here it comes, they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Did you catch that? Would you write it down, please? They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They have a leader and they follow Him, even unto death if need be. Even if it means being buried alone in a lonely Basel, Switzerland, Cemetery. They follow the Lamb. And that's what makes them, by the way. That's what makes these a generation of great leaders. Get this down and never forget it. Write it down. Because the mark of a great leader is the ability to follow. Keep writing. The greatest leaders in the annals of heaven have been the greatest followers in the history of earth. The mark of a great leader is the ability to follow. Enoch. Enoch. Noah, Moses, David, Ruth, Deborah, Elijah, John the Baptist, Luther, Miller, Andrews. And you and me? The old King James renders this, These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. Pody Miller, John Nevins, Andrews. Jesus the Lamb, the mark of a great leader, is the ability to follow. So here's the question. Do you follow the leader? Does Andrews, or are we still preoccupied with who's in what's, what position? And what position carries the most clout? And who gets a lion's share of the budget? And who has the most votes? And where can I find the advancement I deserve? Team playing? If you play my way. The mark of a great leader is the ability to follow. So whom is Andrew? Andrew's following? Whom do we follow? And would you know it by the way we live it? Take a look at, take a look at John Evans Andrew's words again from that letter. It will fall your lot to mention my death in the review. I beg you. To make the simplest and briefest statement possible, my best acts have had some trace of selfishness in them or have been lacking in love toward God and man. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth. And by the way, that's where an institution like ours finds grace at the end of a year like this. Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the Gospel truth. He has already taken our sin away. Which is why, in this waning moment of this wearying year, we do well and we do best to leave our sins and our brother's sins and our sister's sins. Leave them behind. He's already taken them away. We don't need a recitation. He's already begun to rewrite the story. We don't need an appendage or a PS to be tacked on now. Let His grace, let His hope, let the Lamb lead us beyond. We follow Him. We'll know. These are they who follow the Lamb wherever He Goes. And by the way, where will we follow if we follow the Lamb? Where does he go? The very next verse, verse six, into every nation, kindred, tribe, tongue and people, i.e. into all the world on behalf of the lamb, student missionaries or not. I got to I got to share this with you before I sit down. This is one of my favorite uh, quotations in the classic on the life of Jesus. Desire of ages. Take a look at this because you need to fill it in. Many feel that it would be a great privilege to visit the scenes of Christ's life on earth, to walk where he trod, to look upon the lake beside where he loved to teach, and the hills and the valleys on which his eyes so often rested. But, listen, but we need not go to Nazareth, to Capernaum, or to Bethany in order to walk in the steps of Jesus. We shall find his footprints beside the sick bed in the hovels of poverty twelve miles up the road. We shall find His footprints in the crowded alleys of the great city, Detroit, Chicago, L.A., New York, Moscow, Beijing, Tokyo, Sydney. We shall find His footprints in every place where there are human hearts in need of consolation. Now here it comes, write it in. In doing as Jesus did when on earth, we shall walk in His steps. You want to follow the Lamb? Hmm? You want to follow the Lamb? Walk in His steps? These are they who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. The young German university student stood transfixed before the oiled canvas... Of Domenico Fetti's Homo, Behold the Lamb. The boy can't move in that Dusseldorf art gallery that afternoon. It is as if he stands all alone and he gazes up into that very painting. His eyes drop to the bottom and if yours will do the same, you will see that the artist has inscribed the words, All this I did for thee. What doest thou for me? That very question first troubled and then slowly won the young man's heart to Christ. And when he left that afternoon gallery, he went back to his campus and he formed he formed a community of young adults and they called themselves the Order of the Grain of Mustard Seed. The name of the young man, Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. And that Order of Young Adults would eventually become what missiologists consider today the most expansive missionary movement in the history of Christianity, the Moravians. You ever heard of the Moravians? The Moravians adopted the Lamb of Revelation 14 as their motto, as their symbol. I want to put it on the screen with you with the Latin motto beneath their symbol. The Latin reads, "Visita agnus noster ium sequamur." Now you write down the English: "Our Lamb has conquered; him, let us follow." Because you see, the mark of a great movement, as well as a great leader, is the ability to follow. And they followed the Lamb wherever he went. Man, oh man, oh man! I want to follow too. Don't you? I want to follow. I want to follow that lamb.